Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. I'm the publisher and owner of a media company in the Hudson Valley, New York. I launched this podcast to highlight and discuss topics without fear. My aim is to have a free exchange of ideas and an open and honest discussion on the issues of the day. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. We've taken a little hiatus over the past several weeks because of the holidays, but we decided to jump back in for 2022. We have our editorial roundup. I know people, even though we had a hiatus, people were still downloading the episode. So, you know, it was nice to see that. We have Tom Walagorski, he's the editor of the Somers Record and the North Salem News. We have Brian Marsh, our editor of Yorktown News and the Katona Lisboa Times. And Bob Dumas, the editor of Mayapac News. I'm I was like hoping I was getting that right as I was saying all of that because uh, I haven't said it in the, in the several weeks. So uh, welcome, gentlemen. Yeah, good, day. Nice. good to be back. Good so be back we, we, we have a lot of interesting stories uh, that uh, I want to delve right into. I think just from our conversation, I think the top story that really I think are going to raise some eyebrows is a possible development taking place in the Baldwin Place area, which really affects... Somers, Yorktown, and Mayapac. So, um, Tom, I- I'm going to give you the lead on that. If you want to give us a take on that, yeah. Um, the uh, you know first uh, first story really for Somers that kind of moved the needle here in 2022 was uh, you know possible real estate development in uh, in Baldwin Place. So uh, anybody that uh, shops at Home Goods that's actually going to be relocating to uh, Mohegan Lake, and the uh, developer is a uh, called Erstad Biddle Properties. They're the ones that own it. And with the home goods leaving, they reached out to a, over a hundred different retailers. It's a very huge space. They called it a thirty thousand square foot box. And the problem is to get it like a, a larger anchor store in there was a problem. They considered subdividing it, breaking it up into smaller stores. But the way the building is laid out, they would basically have like very long, narrow. Like they they compared them to bowling alleys. So it's kind of an all or nothing thing. And with a, a lack of another larger retail store coming in. They are proposing a new apartment building, which would be five stories, uh, 160 unit uh, apartments. They called it affordable living. It would be one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom, uh, you know, broken up. But and, let me ask you a question. Would, would kids be prevented from living in these apartments? Or and if not, obviously, you know, because I know that becomes a controversial thing because the school district, people talk about the school taxes and whatnot going up, you know, so curious about that. Yeah, I'm not sure if the um, I mean, they they said it would be like family housing. And if you had three bedrooms, so I'm assuming that that would include children and everything. But no, it's definitely a consideration with, uh, you know, how it impacts school taxes and everything. Can um, I also follow up. You said affordable. Do you mean actually affordable as in terms of what the county defines as affordable housing or is it kind of a marketing word? I assumed it to be a marketing word because they didn't <laughs> elaborate any more on that. I mean, I'd like to think that, you know, any any part would be affordable. But yeah, they I, I know what you're saying. They didn't put an exact dollar figure on it. Oh, because that becomes a whole different zoning issue if it's the legal definition of affordable. Yeah. Right. I mean, also, this is, uh, you know, this is a little problematic because this was brought up at sort of an informal presentation at the planning board a couple weeks ago, like early in January, last week, early in January. And right now, it's that area is zoned community shopping, so it would need to be rezoned. And this would be sort of significant because there, a five-story apartment building would be the biggest apartment building in Somers. Right now, the current largest ones are only three stories. 
So, so I, I, I guess another question for you, I man. Obviously, I mean, based on on our social media, the reaction on social media, you know, this is definitely. I, I know a lot of readers tell me if I'm wrong seem to be upset by this development. I, I guess another, well, two questions: Why are they upset by this development? A, um, I'd be curious to get your take on that, and B. I am curious why Erstat Biddle couldn't find another um, store to fill that. I mean, it seems like that location really is, you know, that's a, that's a nice shopping center. It's a, it's a very good looking shopping center and there's nice stores there. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit nicer of a shopping center than the one like next to it, right in Mayapak where the McDonald's is. So I'm curious, you know, they, they couldn't get, I mean, I guess they wouldn't want to put another supermarket because there's a stop and shop there. But yeah. The uh, stop and shop is the other anchor. Um, the, yeah. the gentleman from Erstat Biddle that was speaking just yeah. kind of alluded to that all retail is hurting right now, like just traditional brick and mortar stores. So I think that might be, you know, sort of just like a larger nationwide problem, not really specific to the Baldwin place location. I think a lot of just from reading through, uh, you know, as, as about five minutes before we started recording this, we had uh, 77 comments on our thing, which is a pretty, you know, pretty significant reaction. All everybody negative. One of the main things that seemed to be a common concern with people was traffic. Just you're yes. putting that much, you know, you're putting that many more people in that area and, you know, right on Route 6 and everything. So, yeah, I could see that being like a traffic star. I mean, that definitely seemed to be one of the main concerns. Yeah, just to interject, it's very similar to what's going on in Yorktown because the Kmart building, which they went out last year, they left that building vacant in Yorktown. Uh, It's this massive building and it's the same thing. The the developer said it's just too difficult to find a retail tenant, a single retail tenant to fill that much space. So they proposed tear it down, build 150 units, uh, mixed use. They said that's the way things are going, 150 units with retail on the bottom floor. And the townspeople were kind of, they're not totally opposed to the project. They're kind of incredulous at the suggestion that traffic will go down because that's what the um, environmental consultants have argued, that residential produces less traffic than commercial. So that, you know, that might be, it, I guess I could buy the argument maybe because, you know, <laughs> while there's more people living there, there's less people going to visit there. I'm not an expert, you know, listen, so my job is to just say, hey, this is what the environmental consultant said. I'm not an expert on traffic, so I, I, I can't I can't claim to have read the reports or, you know, but, you know, it, it's it's very similar issue in terms of, you know, but I think Tom is right about, you know, this pandemic economy. A lot of retailers are just not mm-hmm. looking to expand. Um, you know, yeah. it, we had the K- empty Kmart building in Mayapak that eventually Ocean State job lots took over half that building. That was almost two years ago now, and they still haven't been able to find anybody to fill the other side of it. It's just a big mm-hmm. curtain there. So yeah, you, um, do. you see yeah. a lot of that. Like I, I live in New Fairfield, Connecticut, like right across the border. So I do a lot of my shopping in Brewster and Patterson, and you go into some of those plazas and strip malls, and there are stores that you know bigger store spaces that have been empty for years. You know, but what's very interesting, I mean, also, and I think the Jefferson Valley Mall is is sort of headed in this direction where they're trying to do more, you know, they're trying to make it almost like a a location for events and stuff like that is, you know, I wonder if if you've ever been to Danbury and I haven't been to this place since the pandemic because my wife would never let my kids go right now, but there's a, a place called Bounce in the Danbury area and it's just, it's just a trampoline park. You know, I could see like, you know, Baldwin Place, again, that's, there's a lot of traffic you know, a lot of residential areas around there. I could see like a bounce doing really, really well there. Yeah, the to, the, to fill know. a bigger space like that, especially that you can't subdivide it. Like it is, it's a, it's a tough problem to have that you just have this giant store that you can't really do much with. Yeah. 
So, I mean, there, but there are, you know, to provide like the counterpoint, or at least the argument from, uh, you know, the representative from Erstat Biddle is that if you do put a residential property in there, you do get a boost to property taxes, sales taxes, the other merchants that are in the area. I mean, I don't know how I personally would feel about living in an apartment building where you're walking out into a, you know, a retail parking lot. But I mean, yeah, I was thinking about that too. No, no, and that was that was definitely a concern from a lot of people. It's like, who would want to live there? I bet you a lot of senior citizens would want to live there. Seniors who maybe don't want to drive or can't drive, you know, it might be a nice way for them to, you know, walk right to the stop and shop. I'd live there. (laughs) I'm serious. Yeah, you know, I, I, I believe it. I believe it. After this, we should just dovetail right into my uh, Yorktown development story, and then we can circle back to Tom because this agreed, is agreed. They're yeah, so closely yeah. related. Yeah, agreed. And 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 uh, <laughs> I do want to go also to the the big theft in Mayapack also because I think yeah, yeah. Awesome. But yeah, so uh, Brian, I'm sorry. Let's let's go over to uh, I guess uh, the overlay districts got approved. So that's, right. So that's, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I, that's overlay districts like unfunded mandates is one of those phrases that when you say it, I feel like I could see people's eyes roll in the back of their heads. So overlay districts in layman's turn, it's really basically they rezoned a bunch of properties in downtown Yorktown Heights. So for all intents and purposes, that we're going to say they rezoned them to encourage mixed use developments, and they basically gave the developers the ability to build bigger, taller buildings and encourage like more walkability and to hold them to certain aesthetic standards, kind of give and take, you know, like, Hey, you, we'll, we'll let you build a bigger building, but you gotta, you know, do this and that. So, but there's been a lot of interest, of course. Uh, one of the much discussed ones, the Soundview property where they're talking about bringing in 165 units to the old Soundview prep school. Uh, that's on Underhill Avenue. Then right down the road is the other one we're talking about is the Kmart building. Kmart and Food Emporium, they're in the Yorktown Green Shopping Center. The Food Emporium has been vacant for 10 years, maybe even more than that. I think it was vacant when I graduated college. And the Kmart building has been vacant since last year. So it's suffering the same issue. You know, the planning director there says just brick and mortar retail, it's just not doing well. And all development trends are trending toward mixed use, rental units, apartment buildings, things like this. And especially with, you know, the mass exodus we saw last year from the city, there's a desperate need for rental units, there's a desperate need for apartment buildings in our communities. That At least that's what they say. I, I don't know. I'm, I, again, my job is to say what other people say. Now, when, um, you, say, when you say mixed use properties for these, you're talking like retail on the yes. bottom and apartment living up to... Okay. Correct. Yeah. So mixed use, when you hear the buzzword mixed use, it, it's usually retail residential. So right now that shopping center, it's the same thing where people of Yorktown are very excited because that food emporium building that I just mentioned will finally be filled by Uncle Giuseppe's. It's been the worst kept secret in Yorktown for about the last year. I could not get Uncle Giuseppe's to confirm, which was frustrating. But finally, they submitted their plans. They went before the planning board two weeks ago. They made it official. They're moving over there, moving you know a quarter mile down the road into a bigger building. So that will be filled by one tenant. You know, They miraculously were able to fill this one big building with one tenant. And but the Kmart is even bigger, and the developers of that so they want to tear down the Kmart building and build 150 units. So it's going to be the same thing where you're going to have this apartment building in a commercial center. It's, it's kind of interesting, you know, the the way things are going. I know they they want they want fewer parking lots, these vast seas of asphalt they want to get rid of. They want more walkability, more rental units, and. Yeah, that, that seems to be the way things are going. And these overlay districts are making this all possible because that does not comply with any... It doesn't really comply with Yorktown's code as is because it's bigger than what would be allowed. So it would need a variance and things like that. So It almost seems like they're trying to change Yorktown into maybe something that looks like a Mount Kisco. Would that be an accurate description? 
I don't know. It's, Yorktown will never be that just because Yorktown has so many state roads. It's not really laid out to be like that, like a Katona, Mount Kisco. I mean, they're trying to do their best to, I think, make it more walkable and to have pe- more people living in the downtown area. But yeah, it's the layout does not you yeah. know work for that. But I mean, they're, Although they're I, have to, I have to say the downtown area of Yorktown is Yorktown Heights. I actually, yeah. I actually think yeah. it's a very pretty downtown. Yorktown is yeah. it's, it's they're interesting because like Somers, it's actually like a ton of state roads in their downtown area. It's, it's just 202, 118, 35. And then, you know, you, you hop off on Veterans Road and Commerce Street and you drive through the little downtown area. It's not bad. I, I, I think it's nice. Uh, Veterans Road and, and Commerce Street. Yeah, I mean, it's cute. There's I know there's the um, Starbucks and yeah, but yeah, that's the way these things are going in Europe. So basically with the overlay districts being approved, the floodgates have been opened. Uh, we're going to see a lot of developments, mixed use developments. I know uh, right now, the three that we really know of actually are the Kmart, the Soundview, and a boutique hotel has been proposed for the corner of Commerce Street and Veterans Road, which has people just upset uh, because they, why would, you know, Yorktown's not a tourist destination, but I don't think that's the point of the a boutique hotel. It's, you know, it's, it's 12 rooms. It's, it's, it, that's, so it's not, or something like that. 16 no, rooms. see, I, I think that's kind of cool. I mean, I don't know if it's, you guys have ever been stories. like, cold, have you been in a cold spring before? It's going to be a rooftop bar on it. So that's like, you know, awesome. That's they, very they, cool. They just want to leave the kids at home for a night, have grandma babysit, and let's go, you know, spend the night in town. It's almost like a bed and breakfast. Kind exactly. Of thing. That's kind of what it is. Yeah. So, you know, maybe someone's in town for a wedding, but I, it's not like a Marriott or something. You're not, you're not going to have hundreds of rooms. I, I, I get why that wouldn't really make sense for downtown Yorktown, but I don't see what the outrage is over the hotel. I will, yeah, I, I will tell you. Hotel. Yeah. I, I will say one of my, one of our favorite things. You know, when we had been living in Carmel on a weekend, we'd go to Cold Spring and go to brunch. That's like the, you know, and that almost <laughs> sounds like it's becoming like a Cold Spring, which I think I actually think that's kind of cool. Yeah. So that that's what's going on in Yorktown. Triangle Center, I know, has been rumored to also be taking advantage of these overlay zones. So who knows what's in store there? But I, I like I said, the development floodgates are open and, and it should be a very busy year in 2022 for Yorktown. Well, cool. very, very cool. I'm excited to follow all this. Bob, I'm going to turn to you. And this is a Mayapak and Somers story. I actually think it's a little bit of a bigger story for, for Somers. But you are following the story. And people who are listening, your jaw is about to drop. Let me put it that way. <laughs> okay, you're talking about the theft, I assume. Yes. Yeah, because, yes. Um, so anyway, we just found out yesterday. This happened on Tuesday, which would be the, for those listening, this was January 18th that happened. We're talking on the 20th. Nicole... Borelli Stern, who is the daughter of Mike Borelli, the former town councilman. And this family is an iconic Mayapak family. Love them or hate them. They are responsible for many developments throughout the town over the decades. They own tons of property. Many of the restaurants, your favorite restaurants uh, that you go to, were probably owned, uh, the, the buildings probably owned by them. At any rate, uh, I talked to Nicole yesterday and she informed me that they um, had a babysitter, a male babysitter, who was also his full time job. He was a teacher at Primrose Elementary School in Somers. And he has been arrested for stealing money out of their home. They caught him on a, uh, a camera that they planted in the house. So she actually watched in real time as this guy rummaged through her purse and stole about 
$2,500 in cash out of the purse. I you know, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I doubled it. It's $1,250. I don't yep, know yep. why I said twenty. It's $1,250. Now, she told me over the past six months that more than $50,000 in cash and jewelry has been missing. And originally, they suspected somebody else. This guy wasn't even on the radar until they caught him. Now, his name is um, Michael Yoder, Y-O-D-E-R. He's been charged with grand larceny in the um, fourth degree only for the money that was stolen out of the purse. The investigation is ongoing because of all the other missing money. But here's the funny thing that I found out this morning. Um, Nicole sent me a text. What a lot of people may not know is the Stearns have a pet pig. (laughs) And I've seen pictures of the pig on Facebook since I got it as a little tiny piglet. It's adorable. It's like their dog. Well, she said they fear that the pig might have also eaten some of the money that fell on the floor during the the robbery when he was rummaging through the purse. So I'm going to look into more of that. And and, and I do want to bring up something real quick. Also, Michael Yoder is not just an elementary school teacher. He's also the JV coach of, um, of volleyball. In the Somer Central School District. Yeah, Chris from Rose Phys Ed, JV Volleyball. Yeah. Yeah. So I talked to the Carmel uh, PD is investigating this. They're the ones that made the arrest right there on the scene because Nicole was watching this robbery in real time and called the cops. So everybody kind of converged at the same moment. She said he was arrested in front of her and her children. And uh, she said she felt stabbed in the heart because he was a close family friend and she felt betrayal like you would not believe. So the cops told me that they notified the Somer School District, let them know, you know, not just to let them know what was going on, but also to look in to see if there was any thefts that the school district was looking into. And I know Tom has reached out to the Somer School District to find out what's going on. We're still waiting to hear back from them. So very interesting scenario there, Brett. I don't know why somebody would think stealing $1,200, like somebody wouldn't notice that was missing. If somebody stole $5 from my wallet, I would notice it was missing. Well, Bob Bob and I, when we were talking about this yesterday, (laughs) we both arrived at the same conclusion that who has $1,200 in their purse? (laughs) Well, yeah. And I don't want to go into all that, the speculation, because it's nothing official on the record and I don't want to speak out of school. But there are some theories about not why she had that much money in her purse, but why you know, why he was stealing well, and that sort of thing. Oh, oh, to be clear, though, she did install a camera. So she did put that money in her purse in order to see if he would well, steal I, it. I, she didn't, she oh, didn't tell right. me that she put the money in her purse specifically to see if he would steal it. But right. she did tell me that she puts her purse in the same place all the time mm-hmm. on this counter in the kitchen, apparently. And she did place the camera so that it would be looking at the purse. Because she had finally got fed up with the money disappearing and went out and bought those, I don't call it a nanny cam, but, you know, you know, surveillance camera, you know, with the app that she could watch on her phone. And this is what happened. So I I am going to speculate because this is Hudson Valley Uncensored. (laughs) So I I am going to speculate here. I think someone who has a good job with the Somer School District who allegedly steals, you know, he hasn't been convicted of anything. So it's alleged, but. You know, if someone is allegedly stealing, why are they stealing that cash? I know that over the past bunch of years in our towns, when we've seen kind of thefts like this, it's often drug related. 
a lot hmm. of drugs and heroin. And I mean, you know, again, I'm yeah, just some I'm, people just steal just to steal just because they want more money. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I, I'm not, and Brett's kind of hit the nail on the head here. And like I said, I'm not going to go into what I know at this point until I can confirm everything. But that is what, you know, some sources have told me as well. That's mm. what it was all about, you know, because of some past histories that have been revealed. So, um, yeah. So and, that's, that's an interesting story. And then I guess another, another kind of thing I think will raise eyebrows in Maypac is the downtown. They discovered something, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit cause for concern here. You're talking about, yeah. And this kind of probably caught a lot of people by surprise, unless you're a longtime Mayapak resident, is the downtown business district in Mayapak. That's that little triangle, that wedge of business district between 6 and 6N, you know, where Kobu restaurant is and um, that whole area there. And the ironic part is, is, you know, that they're prepping that part for the Renaissance, for the whole rebuild and remodel of that area. But in the early 80s, that was declared a Superfund site, which means it had some serious pollution. And at the time, it was caused by dry cleaning waste seeping into the water table down there. In the early 2000s, it was remediation. It was cleaned up and thought that the problem solved. But the uh, Department of Environmental Conservation, which is, you know, monitors these sites, has discovered, and I don't have my papers in front of me, so I can't tell you the chemical, but that they have discovered uh, chemical, again, back in some well water, they are drinking well water, above accepted uh, limitations. Now, the problem is, is that they've changed the scale for that. So what maybe a year ago wouldn't have been over the accepted limit now is, you know, so but maybe nonetheless, not, so nothing's changed. You're saying nothing's changed except for me, the law. Well, yeah, but what they've done is they've gone in and they put filters, 18, 19 different wells throughout the community and they're still monitoring it. Now I asked uh, the spokesperson from the DEC, is this a dangerous situation? And they didn't seem to think there was anybody in deep peril right now and that they have it under control and they're monitoring it. But it's the last thing that, you know, it has nothing to do with the town. They did nothing wrong. But, you know, they're trying to go in and revitalize this area, both aesthetically and financially and commercially. And so it seems like every time they take one step forward, there's two steps back. Because they also recently, and this was on our front page in our most recent issue, everybody knows about Swan Cove and what they want to do over there and create a park and a municipal parking lot because parking is an issue in that area for shoppers. And so, you know, they bought that property from the bank to make the parking lot and they bought the property from a private developer to make the park. What happened a couple of weeks ago is, and, and the chamber building used to be there, they tore that down. What they didn't realize, what buried deep in the ground behind that chamber building was an oil tank, you know, a heating oil tank for the chamber building, which they discovered had leaked petroleum into the ground. And, of course, the uh, people doing the digging had to notify the DEC, which gave it a spill number. And so they had to remove the tank and now they got to do soil remediation there. And it's prompting the engineering department at town hall to now inspect the entire property to make sure they don't find anything else like that there. So 
you know, hopefully insurance will cover the cost of that. You know, so far they were looking at a bill just shy of $20,000, you know, it was property once owned by the bank. So what the bank's involvement in this is going to be is still remains to be seen. So that's what's going on in downtown Mayapak these days. <laughs> So um, I, actually, I'm gonna. I do want to jump into the other thing that you that you just wanted to bring up, also um, about the car uh, that they found. Oh yeah, yeah, because that happened just up the street from all this. Is this past weekend uh, a car was discovered floating just off the shore of Lake Mayapak that had been submerged. So right away, the Mayapak Falls Fire Department's dive team was called in. These guys are amazing, and. They went right in the water to see if there was somebody in the car. There was nobody in it. It was just a car floating in the water. So they pulled that out. I spoke to the chief of police. The investigation is ongoing. They discovered the owner of the car. I'll learn a little bit more later today. They got to get back to me. But he told me that the guy, whoever or woman, hasn't been revealed, the driver of the car was able to get out and get back to shore. Must have been cold as hell because that lake is full of ice right now. And the person left the scene of the accident. So the investigation is ongoing. I'll have more details later as uh, the police reports are given to me. But and actually, in, in, fa- in fairness to the person, he or she might have left the scene of the accident because they were freezing cold and they wanted to get warm. And I imagine yeah. they were probably in shock, you know. Yeah. So, but yeah. Um, yeah, and where they went. Who knows? You know, hopefully I'll have all those answers once the police give me the report. I just spoke to Chief Hoffman this morning and they're supposed to get it to me later today. So that was bizarre. I have a picture of them wenching the car up out of the water. Quickly, a couple other quick stories. Uh, As everybody knows, we have a new supervisor in town, Mike Kazari, the former police chief. And right away, three weeks in, I started getting emails from people pointing out there was a meeting last night, pointing out a particular agenda item. And that supervisor, Kazari's wife, has been hired as a senior accountant in the town's accounting department. And everybody was worried about this, you know, the optics of this and nepotism. So, so, um, so, so real, real quick, how did, how did the other town board members respond to that? Well, it got approved last night, four to zero with Mike Kazari abstaining. One person got up during the public comment portion and said, you know, were other people interviewed for this job? Is it a um, civil service job? Was it advertised? All these questions. These were all answered at the end of the meeting by Ann Pascarella, who is uh, Kazari's chief of staff. And basically, she revealed that Mrs. Kazari is a former accountant in the Mayapak School District. She has experience in this kind of thing. She's worked for the town in the past. She was on a, a short list. They have all the state laws for hiring were followed in this. I'll be talking to her later today and reviewing the tape of her statement, but all of the questions that were asked in the public court portion of the meeting were answered by Anne at the end of the meeting. So it sounds like the only issue is that you know, politically, it's, it might, might not have been a smart move, but yeah, I think legally. Now, I got a, I got a, um, I, I, uh, I do, I do want to move on. Um, yeah, and, and and just real quickly, somebody yeah. said, oh, they gave her a cushy job. Well, the salary is around 32 grand a year. So I'm not sure how cushy it is. So 
it does sound like she was qualified. So I'm going to be looking into that a little more. Thank you. And then and I'm going to, I'm going to jump over because, um, and this is really kind of related about some, you know, things that trends are going on in a bunch of our towns. And I know Brian, you kind of touched on this before the meeting. So I, you know, if you want to get into this, um, and if it impacts Somers and, and uh, several other towns. So I like to think I'm kind of a town code aficionado. I spend a lot of my free time uh, exploring, you know, the, the town codes of the uh, towns I cover. But one thing I wasn't aware of, and I guess it's because it's not the town code, I think it's a state law that supervisors can appoint somebody to the deputy supervisor position who isn't an elected official. And this has been happening with frequency since January 1st. You know, I was always under the impression that it had to be, you know, another council member or something like that, because that's kind of how it's always been in the towns I've covered. You know, Matt Slater is the town supervisor in Yorktown and his deputy is Councilman Tom Diana. And the deputy basically is somebody who just fills in when the supervisor is not there. But with more frequency this year, uh, we're starting to see supervisors pick deputies who are not elected officials and, and probably... Can, can they vote during the town board meetings or how does that work? So I think it's supervisor's discretion. I, I don't think it's subject to a town board vote, at least. Um, no, no, I'm saying like... if, if the Oh, no, no, they do not have... For a non-elected official, they do not get voting power. Okay. They right. just kind of oversee and run the meetings and things okay. like that. Well, and aren't yeah, they so. aren't they allowed to sign things too if they're perhaps as a, you know as a stand in I, I I'm not familiar with that but I know they don't have voting power. And this was kind of a sensitive issue I know in in, in Somers because you know every, everyone was happy with Tom Garrity and so you know Tom if you want to get into you know what what happened there. Uh yeah basically it was one of Supervisor Rob Scarano's first moves upon taking office I think it was about three days into the year and he appointed previous Supervisor Rick Morrissey as as his deputy. We spoke to him about it. Uh, Rob Scrano, you know, he said that he was approaching it, you know, like a businessman. That's his background. And just who would be the best fit for the job to kind of advise him, especially as, you know, a, a newly elected official by his own admission without experience. So we just thought that, you know, having somebody to guide him in Rick Morrissey would be the, you know, the best man for the job. Yeah. But interesting. Definitely an interesting choice. When I covered Pound Ridge for the Daily Voice, that, that's the way they did it, too. They had a non-elected deputy supervisor when I was there. So it was yeah. the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. I don't know if you guys are aware of this. In the House of Representatives, the Speaker of the House does not have to be a congressperson. The Speaker of the House can actually be whoever the majority of the House members choose. So um, yeah, there, wow. there had been speculation you know, when and if the Republicans take back the House. People have mentioned them electing Donald Trump as a Speaker of the House, which would <laughs> which, which which would be very interesting for sure. I um, mean, it just sounds like uh, DC is a reality show at this point. So exactly, <laughs> what would bring yeah. us the most ratings? Let's see. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but in, in in Bedford, Ellen Calvis, in one of her first decisions, appointed Kate Galligan as her deputy. And Kate Galligan is a former Bedford councilwoman who actually resigned last year to join the staff of Kitley Koval, who is a former Westchester County legislator. So now that she's kind of freed up, Kate Galligan accepted the position. It's very it's, things are pretty polarizing over in Bedford. A lot of decisions Ellen makes. Obviously, the Democratic Party over there is a little splintered. Uh, they had a pretty contentious primary last year. Ellen defeated the incumbent supervisor in the Democratic primary, and. Marianne Carr, the former supervisor, has been very vocal about Ellen's decisions. And this, of course, just kind of gave them more ammunition to question her. And then over in Lewisboro, the similar thing happened, but no, nobody's really upset. Basically, Peter Parsons, the former Lewisboro town supervisor, had long named Leo Masters in the town's comptroller as his deputy. That was for many years. 
the last two years he named, or the last year, I should say, he named Tony Gonsalves, the councilman, his deputy. That was more to kind of prep him for the job. Tony ran and won the supervisor job this year. And then Tony, now back as Lewisboro supervisor, appointed Leo Masterson as his deputy again. So uh, the same decision, but much less controversy. So it's kind of interesting to see how our two towns react to this very, similar thing happening. Very interesting. And it was, it was interesting to discover, you know, because we haven't seen this really until until now. Yeah, I, 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 I was, yeah. I'm fascinated by it. And it rarely comes up because, you know, and when I watch these meetings, supervisors like, I actually haven't seen one of my supervisors miss a meeting in quite a while. So especially with COVID, people aren't really traveling anywhere. And Yeah. It'd, it'd be curious <laughs> if um, if a, a town clerk could ever be appointed as a deputy supervisor. I'm because guessing they, they, why not? Yeah. The town comptroller can. Yeah. They could be a, you know, certainly a logical choice just because they know. Yeah. If anyone knows how the towns run, it's certainly. You well, know, I know when clerks. back in the 90s, actually, I think in mid 2000s, Alice Roker, the town clerk at the time in Yorktown, took over on an interim basis as supervisor for three months until, uh, cause I think somebody resigned. I kind of, that was before my time. So I don't know all the particulars, but yeah, she served as interim supervisor and then went back to being town clerk. after that. And I, I want to jump into one last thing. Um, mm-hmm. and then if anyone has, has anything they want to end, end with after that, you know, feel free to chime in. You know, we haven't discussed, uh, Eric DiPartolo's, uh, guilty. Yeah, believe it or not. Yeah. We, we, we haven't discussed this since the last time we met about three weeks ago now maybe four weeks ago, he pleaded guilty to petty larceny. Eric DiBartolo, if you're not familiar, is a former Yorktown Highway Superintendent, a position he held for 15 or 16 years, something like that. And he's also the former Chamber of Commerce president in Yorktown. He owns a small business. And so basically what he was accused of, and I should say he was a polarizing figure one, he was in the public eye. So and I, and I'm not speaking out of school there, I don't think. So basically, he is accused, I, I shouldn't say accused, he's now pleaded guilty to this, to, to stealing about $15,000 worth of merchandise from the Home Depot in the Cortland Town Center. He would return on multiple occasions. I think it was 20 some odd occasions, 23 or 24. He would go to the store, fill up his cart, take it to the cashier, and the cashier you know, was working with him. So the cashier would ring up you know, one or two items in the cart, he would pay for those and then he'd walk out with the rest. So I think it's called a uh, skip and scan or scan and skip scheme. Try to say that five times fast. Uh, so that that's what he, he was accused of initially, I think, 19 counts of petty larceny and four counts of grand larceny. And grand larceny is a theft of valuables worth more than $1,000. And petty is you know between one and $999. So that means being charged four times with grand larceny, at least on four occasions, he stole more than $1,000 worth of items. And this thing just kind of kept getting delayed and delayed, adjourned and things like that. And, and this is kind of how our justice system operates. And I can get into that a little more after this. But basically, his attorney met in private with the DA's attorney, the prosecutors from the DA's office for months and months. And finally, they reached a plea agreement. He pleaded guilty to a much lesser charge, petty larceny. He's on a conditional discharge, basically not getting any trouble for the next year or so. And 50 Sorry. hours of community service. And he's barred from ever entering a Home Depot ever again. So Which means those- that if, if, uh, if he's doing his uh, any kind of home improvement projects, people will be seeing him at Lowe's. Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know how enforceable that is if he's in like a Home Depot in Nyack. You know, do they have his picture on the wall? I don't, probably not. <laughs> a lot of people were discouraged, you know, and Eric must not be a super popular guy because my email was flooded with people saying, How can this be? You know, how can somebody who admits to stealing 
$15,000, which is well above the $1,000 threshold for grand larceny. How can that person possibly plead guilty to petty larceny, which is a misdemeanor and basically a slap on the wrist? And I spoke to a judge about this and it's kind of, like I said, the way our justice system works now. I was trying to learn more about this. And, and he basically said that courts are overburdened, prosecutors' offices are overburdened, and with nonviolent crimes, especially, they just try to get them off their docket. They have to be practical as much as they want to get justice. They almost have to, they have to be practical as well. And, uh, you know, how much time the prosecutor has, how much money the defendant is willing to spend to take this to court and things like that. The, all those things are considered. And at the end of the day, they, they got what they wanted. They got a guilty plea. So I think yeah, everybody's happy there. You know, so they got they get a guilty plea and he avoids jail time. I don't think he was ever going to do jail time anyway. But yes, to, to not plead guilty to a felony, I'm sure he's pretty happy about that. I think the problem with what you just mentioned with the justice system is that then it really introduces a lot of subjectivity to um, prosecution and, you know, who gets prosecuted. Yeah, yeah. no, no, it's, it's inherently unfair in the sense that somebody who can't necessarily afford a good lawyer probably can't make as good of a plea deal. Yeah. You know, the, the threat of court is scarier for someone like them. Or, or perhaps who's even, you know, who might be connected to, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, the, it's to the good old boys network type of thing. I, I did also speak to a, a defense attorney who's defended many clients in the Westchester and worked with the Westchester DA's office a lot. And, you know, he he was actually shocked. He said Westchester is traditionally very tough. He said that he had a client who stole a case of beer from a gas station once. And the, the DA's office was insistent on a guilty plea to petty larceny. They yeah. wouldn't, you know, drop it down to a violation or anything like that. And it's, this is a case of beer. So, yeah. and, and you would think that a former president, former highway superintendent, and former president of the Chamber of Commerce, you'd think that they'd want to make an example out of him. And 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 I mean, I know he, I, I believe he's still listed as a, you know, past president of the Yorktown Chamber of Commerce. Right. Right. Yeah. I know. We we asked Sergio Esposito, who is now also the past president of the Chamber of Commerce, while he was president, we asked him, you know, is the board of directors going to take this under consideration? He kind of punted on the question. Um, I think he's probably looking forward to just being a councilman and not answering that question. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. He, uh, he just said, we'll discuss it next time we meet as a board. But uh, yeah, he still um, is on the Chamber of Board of Directors. Hmm. Interesting. As far as I know, I don't know if they've met. Well, in Mayapac, we had a uh, Chamber CEO get arrested and got uh, basically a slap on the wrist as well. So there's a parallel there. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's basically what's going on. It's interesting to see how this all works, you know, the justice system. And, and you know, I told people I was once very naive with covering these. I remember I, I went to a, uh, some guy was arrested for uh, the bingo caller. I don't know if you remember this. He was yep. accused of rigging bingo games. My God. Um, yeah, so I he, and he was accused of felony fraud. So I would go to the Yorktown Justice Court and see what was going on. And you know, every time they would just get up there, um, can we meet again in a month? We meet, again? you know, it's just they, they never discuss these things in public. And eventually, after eight months, nine months, they come to a plea agreement on a much lesser charge. That guy in that case got a violation. It's always what happens. They plead guilty to a much lesser charge, and that's kind of especially with these nonviolent crimes. That's it seems to be the. What happens? Do you do realize how like how long the just the justice system takes when you actually start following like trial yeah. process before right. you know, before it even goes? Yeah, yeah, and, and without a trial, uh, the details of the case just kind of remain out of sight. You know, we never really hear this case argued in public. We don't know what evidence they have, and this is the way justice is done now. It's all plea agreements. And I think ninety five percent of cases, more than ninety five percent, I think, are plea agreements these days. Uh, almost nothing goes to court, and that's just kind of the way it happens. Well, on that note, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a bigger, I, I just, bigger issue for me and you to tackle. 
just have yeah. one thing I want to sure. add. If I do want to mention the race for county executive. Uh, everybody knows that a month or so ago, Kevin Burns, our state assemblyman here, who covers Mayapak and parts of Westchester, um, had decided he's not running for assembly again. He's going to seek the GOP nomination to run for county executive because Mary Ellen O'Dell has termed out her limits are up. She cannot seek re-election. So Kevin wanted to throw his hat in the ring. Well, we just had uh, somebody join the race for the GOP nomination. So there'll be a primary for sure is county legislator Lou Albano. Ca- Carl Albano. Lou Albano was his, was his father. It was his father. I'll get to that in yeah. a second. But yeah. yeah, Carl Albano, who is county legislator, his territory covers parts of Mayapak as well. And he has decided to run as well. So he held his uh, his uh, coming out party last night at a restaurant here in Mayapak to announce his candidacy. And so he will face Kevin Byrne in a primary later this year to see who gets the GOP nomination. I don't know if the Democrats will put anybody up against them, but that would be a fait accompli if they did. But uh, it should be a really interesting race. Kevin has received, a, a, a you know, obviously a seasoned politician at the state level up in Albany, and he's received a boatload of endorsements from every group you can imagine. But Albano has the support of the local GOP structure. So um, it, it should be a tight race it should be pretty interesting to see how it all plays out so i I will say bob i'm not sure if i agree with you about putnam county you know being a fait accompli between republicans and democrats obviously the the portion of the the county we cover is majority republican i do think there's other parts of the of the county that are you know are democrat and small pocket uh, up and up by cold spring correct and also i do think the demographic the demographics of the county have changed in the past couple of years because of the pandemic and people leaving lower Westchester or Manhattan. I do think the demographics have changed. I, I you know, I, I wouldn't be shocked, you know, if, if that meant, you know, voting um, patterns have changed as well. And also, I do want to add what you were saying. You said Lou Albano. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, Lou Albano was actually Carl's father, and he was better known as Captain Lou Albano. And uh, a professional he wrestler. Yeah, yeah, he was a WWF wrestler back in the day. Um, and a long time Maya Pack resident. And also, uh, I guess, in one of the Cindy Lauper videos. And yeah, girls it, just want to have fun. He starred in that video. Yeah. yeah. And, and I have to say also, on a personal note, I, I know Kevin and Carl both. I know Carl uh, a little bit better. Uh, Carl was actually our first landlord for Halston Media, the owner of uh, our newspapers. He was our first landlord when we first launched Maya Pack News. And I have to say, Carl couldn't have been a better landlord, a great landlord. He was uh, a nice guy. You know, so, you know, I, I, w- I wish them both good luck and, and well, you know, I think they're both good people. And just because I love facts right now. So we, uh, you were just talking about the enrollment for party enrollment. Uh, I have the 2020 numbers, which is 24,933 Republicans and 23,083 Democrats. So it is actually closer than I thought. It's about within 2000. Interesting. And it, it might have changed in the last couple of years. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good possibly yeah. Have, yeah. But there's a psychology here that the Democrats can't seem to overcome. They can't. And I've talked to Democratic leaders in counties. They said they can't get quality candidates to step up because they think 
it's a fate accompli. They think they're going to, yeah, they, they don't want to be a sacrificial lamb. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they, they think, you know, and, except, except um, the sheriff, the sheriff's department, not the newest one, but the one before that, you know, he was, uh, he was a Democrat, you know, that's a, but I was, a you know, we had Smith who had kind of left the office in a, a cloud of corruption, you know? And so I think there was some backlash against that when he left, there was the whole Levy thing. And so I think people were looking for change. And that's why I thought that he'd get reelected, but he got creamed, you know, yeah. by a Republican, by McConnell, who is a controversial candidate in and of himself. And but. talking about Levy, by the way, there's all these weird connections to, to uh, Putnam County people and, and TV stars. Levy's mom is Judge Judy. Hmm. Yep. So this is true. So we've had an interesting time in in 2022 already, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, gentlemen, thank you very much. I hope you guys have a great rest of your week, and we'll meet back again next week. Definitely. All, All right. right. Thanks, Thanks a lot.